If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, as we continue to walk away through the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be in Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42 today. To be wronged is to be human. To be treated unjustly, to be misunderstood, to be taken advantage of is something that we have all faced in life and something that will exist until Jesus returns. Some of us have felt injustice and cruelty more than others, but we have all been wronged because to be wronged is to be human. And because we are human, when we are wronged, the image of God in us cries out for justice and our sinful flesh twists that desire for justice into a desire for revenge. When I think about revenge and vengeance and vigilante justice, images of westerns come to mind where outlaws and others settle their disputes outside swinging saloon doors. Or you might think of the eye for an eye justice seen in gangster movies. But the desire for revenge and, and taking matters of, of justice into our own hands are not only found in the movies. We face these choices every day. And just like um, in the movies, our, our desire for justice can easily morph into a sinful longing for revenge, where the punishment that we desire to mete out on those who have wronged us is as unjust as the crime that was committed against us. So the question that we're asking today is, how should members of God's kingdom respond when they are wronged and when they are treated unjustly? Because we will be. How do we value justice and avoid revenge? It's, a quest, it's questions like these that Jesus is seeking to answer here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. And simply put, he instructs us to choose to be wronged rather than to seek revenge. Choose to be wronged rather than to seek revenge. We live in a world that tells us to fight for every single one of our real and perceived rights. If we sense that one of those rights has been violated, we're told to do whatever it takes to get our just dues or to enact revenge on those who have taken what is rightfully ours. Ours is the culture of, of Judge Judy, where you take your roommate to a televised court because you can't solve the dispute about who's supposed to clean the microwave. We live in a land of litigation where we are ready to sue anybody who harms us. And we've been trained to assume that we are always the victim and that our perception of proper punishment is always correct. None of this means that, that we as Christians are unconcerned about matters of justice and of protecting the God-given rights of all people created in God's image. But we would do well to remember that this teaching of Jesus came to people living under the oppressive rule of Rome. And as we seek to apply the instruction of Jesus to choose to be wronged rather than to seek revenge, we should not let the good desire for justice dull the sharp points of the teaching of Jesus here. We should not immediately, immediately, immediately look for exceptions to the rule of choosing to be wrong rather than wronged rather than seeking revenge. The way of the kingdom is not to be unconcerned with justice or with the victims of injustice. But the way of the kingdom is a way that teaches us that in everyday situations, whether we are interacting with our friends or our families 
with strangers or even with enemies, the child of God should most often choose to be wronged rather than to seek revenge. Not just most often, but we should never seek revenge. We should always choose to be wronged rather than to seek revenge. Matthew chapter 5, let's read verses 38 through 42. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is Jesus' fourth illustration, sorry, fifth illustration of, of kingdom righteousness. And the pattern of his teaching is, is easy to spot. You've heard it said, but I say to you, followed by practical application. Jesus continues to reveal what righteousness in God's kingdom looks like by getting to the heart of the law and revealing the ways that the Pharisees and teachers of the law misapplied its truth. So let's begin by, by seeking to understand the Old Testament command that is, is referenced, as well as the way that the Pharisees seem to be distorting it. And since that's, that's the same way that our sinful hearts want to distort the law. And, and we want to distort the law so that we can appear righteous, so that we can appease our conscience and we can still get what we want. The quote in verse 38 is a familiar one. It's found even in other law systems, including some that predate the Old Testament writings. The, the concept of an eye for an eye has to do with how to enact justice when one person is wronged by another person. It's about retributive justice. It's first recorded in the Old Testament in, in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25, and it speaks of a very specific situation. That text, Exodus 21, 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Leviticus 24, a little bit later in the law, verses 17 through 21, speaks of some other situation and helps us to see that this principle would have applied to other cases when a person was, was wronged or mistreated by another person. It says in Leviticus 24, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. We could look at a few other places in the Old Testament, but these texts are sufficient for us to make an important observation. Namely, that this instruction occurs in sections of the law that are focused on the civil law of the nation, not its moral code. In other words, these instructions are about what kind of punishment those in power were to give when one person harmed another individual or his or her family. These were instructions for judges to help them in determining just punishments. 
seeing that the issue with the pharisaical application of this Old Testament teaching becomes a little bit clearer. The Pharisees took a principle that was intended to be applied in the law courts, and they sought to use it in their personal relationships. And in so doing, they allowed themselves to not only be the victim of crimes, but then they also decided that they were the judge and the jury and the executioner. They were the ones that pronounced guilt and they were the ones that determined the proper punishment for what had been done to them. But such an application undercuts the good intention behind the teaching of an eye for an eye. At first glance, this law, this, this principle appears harsh. We picture people's hands being cut off or their, their eyes being plucked out. Though in practice, the law actually allowed most offenses to be commuted to a payment with the exception being murder. So Israel was not a nation that was filled with people who were missing eyes and hands. And the principle was not intended to be harsh. The principle was intended to promote fairness. As a nation representing our, our perfectly just God, Israel's laws and courts were to accurately reflect God's righteous character. And the principle of an eye for an eye had the effect, in the words of John Stott, of defining justice and restraining revenge. It defined justice and it restrained revenge. Or as Dr. Pennington writes, it was intended to guard against severe retribution that did not fit the crime and self-appointed vigilante action. Which means that that the vision of someone's hand being cut off for stealing is not what this law is all about. In fact, the eye for an eye principle was to guard against that kind of unjust, overly harsh punishment, because that kind of punishment doesn't fit the crime. And so we see that, that an eye for an eye has the force of saying that, that if you knock out someone's tooth in anger, then a tooth, and only a tooth, will be taken from you, nothing more and nothing less. The, the, this law code served not only to ensure that the law courts were just and not unnecessarily harsh, but it also kept people from enacting their own revenge in vigilante justice. The law was to give the correct and fair punishment so as to keep individuals from seeking revenge themselves. And that's because revenge is never clear-minded or committed to fairness. When we or someone we love is wrong, we're not capable of objective judgment that doles out just punishments. Just think about a society where we decided that parents get to make the decision about the kind of punishment that those who commit crimes against their children deserve. Of course, we're not going to be just. We're going to be overly harsh. Hopefully it's clear then that in law courts, an eye for an eye, was able to promote justice and restrain revenge as it was intended. However, when it's applied to personal relationships as the Pharisees were doing, it actually has the opposite effect. It increases revenge. It, it promotes the thing that it was intended to restrain. And if we approach our relationships with others, quoting this principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we too are only seeking to justify our unrighteous actions and fulfill our desire for revenge by quoting the law. So Jesus is not saying that this principle is negative, nor is he saying that it cannot be used for good in society, especially in terms of preventing violence and, and crime. Remember, his goal in these illustrations is not to contradict God's good law, but to show its true intention. And here that means that an eye for an eye is not a requirement nor is it to be wielded in personal relationships. 
In contrast to such an application, we find a very different teaching from Jesus. And what is that teaching? It is non-retaliation. Jesus is teaching that the way we respond when we are wronged is with non-retaliation. He is saying, in the words of Jonathan Pennington again, do not be a vengeful, vigilante, self-justified distributor of justice. There is a righteousness greater and more beautiful than self-justice, letting God be the judge and righteousness maker, the one who puts the world to right. This is the kingdom response. And it's summed up when Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That's there in verse 39. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So what does that mean? What does it mean to not resist the one who is evil or the evil doer? When we see that word resist in scripture, we often find it in commands to, to not resist God or to, to resist the devil. Of course, here Jesus is not telling us to not resist evil in general. Rather, he's calling us to not resist the person who does evil to us, to not push against them or, or the evil they're bringing against us, to not retaliate in response to his or her evil, to not seek revenge. A typical, rea typical reaction to this kind of a command is to feel that Jesus is calling us to a place of weakness. But as we consider this radical kingdom righteousness that Jesus is calling us into, it becomes clear that non-retaliation actually requires more strength than revenge ever could. Practically speaking, non-retaliation and resisting revenge means that we are to leave justice to the Lord and we are to sacrificially love those who harm us and take advantage of us. Let's think about that first idea. We are to leave justice to the Lord. We are to leave justice to the Lord. Jesus not, does not explicitly teach this principle here in Matthew 5, but it's present in so many other places that speak about not seeking revenge that I think it's wise to point it out as a teaching that, that undergirds and, and informs this call to not retaliate when we are wronged. Consider a key example of injustice and not seeking revenge from the Old Testament, namely the way that, that David, when he was unjustly pursued by Saul, did not seek Saul's harm, but instead preserved Saul's life. Even when David had the opportunity to secretly kill Saul in a cave, he chose not to. And when he revealed himself to Saul, he announces in, in 1 Samuel 24, 11 and 12, David says, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hand. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And then David says this, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David was able to resist taking revenge on Saul in part because he knew that God would rightly judge between him and Saul. He understood that, that while he was innocent, he was not in the place to enact justice, but he was to trust that God would do that. That's what's taught in Deuteronomy 32, 35, which is what Paul quotes in Romans 12, 19, when he says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And Paul practiced what he preached. He writes this in 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me, 
Now, he doesn't say, so go get him, Timothy. No, he says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And we know that the Lord does repay people according to their deeds. Sometimes life itself in God's sovereignty brings consequences for our sinful actions. The harm that we do to others comes back on, it, on us. Some people wrongly call this karma, but we know that it's a small expression of God's sovereign justice in the world. God's justice is also enacted through earthly governments. Romans 13 teaches us that all authority is given by God. And so when those who sin against others are justly judged for their crimes by courts and, and by laws, it's an, expressions of God, an expression of God's justice in the world. We can be thankful that we live in a land that seeks to give everyone a fair trial and to punish wrongdoers justly. But we are also painfully aware that earthly laws and courts are certainly not perfect. People are wrongly accused of crimes. Guilty parties are not convicted when they should be. Punishments are too light or too extreme. Those who are, are, supposed, to, are supposed to be protected end up being harmed and those who are supposed to protect others end up harming them and so on and all of that means that there are there are times when it's right to protest injustice even from a government to call out the unrighteous sinful actions of authorities to seek to represent god god's justice in this world especially for those who are oppressed for the for the poor for the for the voiceless and for the victimized however seeing the failures of earthly governments it also just reminds us that our ultimate hope is not in them, but in the justice of God. We trust that there will be a final judgment when all the wrongs committed against us, committed against others, and all the wrongs that we have committed against others, all these things will be brought to justice, which means that we don't need to retaliate in the present because we trust that a day is coming when God will act with perfect justice on our behalf. We can trust that every sin ever committed against someone, every sin committed against us, will be paid for. And within this desire for hope and justice and this knowledge that all sin will be paid for, the hope of the gospel is that the most, the most beautiful way that God brings justice into the world is through Jesus' death. In sending Jesus as just and justifier, God made it clear that our salvation does not come at the expense of justice. And the sins that we commit against others and that others commit against us are not forgotten. No, the, the penalty for them is paid. The penalty for them will be paid on the last day when God punishes sins for all eternity. Or it can be paid through the cross where God pours out his justice and his wrath on our sins on the person of Jesus rather than us. And because of that, because, because he has poured out his wrath and his justice on Jesus, he can now call us to faith in his finished work. All sin will be paid for. And our greatest hope is that all people will know the justice and the forgiveness that's found in the cross of Jesus, that they will trust in his life, his death, his resurrection, finding peace in the justice of God that has been displayed through Christ. God, God is not unconcerned with justice. So we can trust that, that he will deal with all the sins committed by us and against us. And we can trust that his judgment is just and fair. And trusting all of this, we're able to choose to not retaliate and to not seek revenge, but to leave that to the Lord. 
However, the, the greater righteousness of the kingdom is not simply to leave justice to the Lord. That's not all it means. Because secondly, we see that we are to sacrificially love those who harm us. We, as followers of Jesus, in the new righteousness of the kingdom, are to sacrificially love those who harm us. We put off revenge and we put on sacrificial love. The words of Matthew 5, 39 to 42 are well known. People unfamiliar with the Sermon on the Mount still know about turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. But do we understand how radical and sacrificial this non-retaliatory love is? Consider these four illustrations that Jesus gives beginning in the second part of verse 39 on through 42. And, and what Jesus is, is calling us to in these things. These four instances where, where someone attacks and assaults us, and then the instruction about how we are to respond. We've become familiar with them, and we miss how radical they are. The, the first one in verse 39 has to do with how we respond when so, how to respond when someone slaps you on the cheek. And, and it carries the force of an attack on our personal dignity. An attack on our personal dignity. A slap in the face with the back of the hand was less about inflicting pain and more about insulting the other person. And so we could extend this to any attack on our personal dignity, whether it's through someone's actions or through their words. How are we to respond when others insult us, when they demean us and speak falsely about us, when they attack our character and question our motives? When someone strikes us, do we strike back? When someone mocks us, are we supposed to mock them? Should we trade insults with other people? Jesus says no. Jesus says we should offer them our other cheek. We should openly allow them to wrong us again, rather than seeking revenge. Again, this is not weakness. Rather, this is the ultimate display of a strength of character that can only come from God. We don't turn the other cheek out of, out of shame or out of weakness, but we do it out of strength of character. The weak person is the one who cannot control his hand or his mouth and who chooses to retaliate, who, who attacks the attacker. The weak person is the one who, who lashes out with their words, whether they speak them or, or throw them up on social media or whatever they might do. The weak person is the one who strikes back, who, who calls names, who, who mocks the person who mocked them. But Jesus calls us to not resist the evil person. He calls us to a greater gospel-centered righteousness. Because anyone can slap back. Anyone can, can respond to a slap with a slap. But only a child of God filled with the Spirit can turn the other cheek. A child of God, secure in their identity, finds rest in, in what God says, finds rest in the fact that they are a child of God, and, and lets the, the words of others, the insults of others, roll off their back. Well, from this attack on our personal, dig, personal dignity, the second example has to do with an attack on our personal possessions. Our personal possessions. It, this is talking about here, it says, if, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is probably referring to an instance when someone unjustly sued another person for their clothing, though it could extend to any unjust taking of our personal property. 
a petty lawsuit. Someone who would take something out of your car or steal a package off your front porch or the, or the like. Is it wrong to seek to prosecute someone for their crimes? Of course not. But, but our spirit is not one that says, you stole from me, so I'll steal from you. You sued me, so I'm going to sue you. We might think about um, someone, just imagine maybe you're in a parking lot and someone takes your parking spot. At least it's what you perceive to be your parking spot. They get in there and it's, it's yours. Do you honk your horn at them? Do you wait for the spot next to them to open up so that you can drive in close to their, to their driver's side door so it's hard for them to get back into their car? Or do you roll down your window and say, hey, can I drive you? I know the, the entrance to the mall is pretty far up there. Can I give you a ride up to the front? Maybe someone steals your television and you do whatever you can to find a way to, to get them the remote control that they forgot to take. That sounds crazy, but so does this. It sounds crazy for someone to sue me for my coat and then I'm going to give them, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give them my, my, my cloak as well. Someone in your house maybe uh, takes the last piece of cake. How do you respond? Do you say, that's mine? You owe me half of that? Or do you say, hey, can I get you a glass of milk to go with your cake? This is what the, the, the non-retaliatory, non-revenge-seeking attitude of the kingdom is. It freely gives, even of our possessions. I think about that scene early on in Les Miserables where the escaped convict Jean Verjean steals some silver from this bishop who had welcomed him into his house and fed him. And the next day, Verjean has been caught by the, by the police and he's brought back to this bishop. And the bishop responds, not by pressing charges, but by saying to Jean Verjean, you forgot the candlesticks. You were supposed to take these as well. And this act of kindness saves Valjean's life. Jesus is almost in this um, illustration of, of if someone wants to take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. He's almost inviting our excuses because in that day to give up those two articles of, of clothing would be to make yourself naked. But that kind of exposure is what makes the love of the kingdom so different. Because anyone can part with just a little bit in an unjust suit, an unjust lawsuit. But only a child of God filled with the Spirit gives more to the one who is seeking to take from her. Attacks on personal dignity, attacks on personal property. The third example is an attack on our personal freedom. Our personal freedom. According to the law of the day, a Roman soldier could ask you to carry his bags for a mile. And if, they, if the soldier asked you to do it, you were required to oblige. You might imagine yourself going about your business and, and maybe you're even on a, on a tight schedule. And all of a sudden this soldier comes up to you and says, hey, you need to carry my bags for a mile. And you are obliged to do it because it's the law. Or you might think about maybe you've had a long day's work and, you, and you're heading home. And a soldier along the way compels you to carry his bags one mile in the opposite direction. I think we could all feel the kind of anger and frustration that would rise up in our hearts if, if that was required of us. But now imagine that at the end of that mile where you've walked with this soldier, imagine that you turn to him and you say, you know, I think I can go another mile with you. I, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to keep walking if that's okay. I'll keep carrying your bags. 
we all supremely value our, our time and our, 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 our autonomy, our, our independence. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We have rights and we have freedoms and we have liberties that we hold very tightly to. Yet Jesus calls us to lay down our rights to serve others. And not just to serve others, but to serve those who are seeking our harm, who could be evil, with whom we, we disagree with and who are taking advantage of us. And not only to serve them in the ways that they ask us to, but then to go above and beyond what they are asking. To find ways to sacrifice our rights and our freedoms so that we can love others. Now, brothers and sisters, we exist in a, in a government much different than that of the first century. These kind of laws about being having to carry a soldier's belongings are not on the books here in America. So this is a different context. And we also have different questions that we're asking about, about freedom and about rights that we have as citizens here in the United States of America. But I just want to say that as, as we wrestle with the rules and the regulations that are put on us, whether by our government or in other ways, or even by just people who are asking us to do things, but especially in the midst of this pandemic, this feels very applicable. As we wrestle with rules and regulations, we need to be careful that we are being shaped more by Jesus's teaching about the kingdom than we are by being shaped by our American understanding of our freedoms. We need to be sure that we are being shaped by the ways of Christ more than by the reactionary ways of the world. When it comes to attacks on our personal freedoms, anyone can walk a mile. Anyone can do what's required of them. But only a child of God, filled with the Spirit, willingly lays down his rights to serve even an enemy. Finally, we see attack, an attack here on our personal finances. It's there in, in verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This doesn't seem to be simply someone asking for a, a handout, begging in the way we might initially think about it, but rather someone forcing you to give them money or to give them a loan. And what are we to do? Jesus says we're to give. Should we be fools? No. Should we be generous to everyone, regardless of how they treat us? Yes, that's the way of the kingdom. Paul's application from 1 Corinthians 6 with regard to lawsuits among Christians seems to apply here and applies to this whole passage because he simply says about this, about, about having lawsuits, he sort of says, why would you do that? And then his response is, why not rather be wronged? Why would you go to court with your brother? Why would you go to court with anyone? Just choose to be wronged. Instead of fighting amongst yourselves and seeking to retain your personal finances or your rights or your possessions or even your own personal dignity, why not just choose to be wronged? That is the, the strange, unique way of the kingdom. And I'll just say, brothers and sisters, none of this is easy. None of this is, is simple. To be wronged and to be taken advantage of hurts deeply to be insulted, to have our possessions taken, to be, to be forced to lay down our, our, our rights, to be robbed of our finances. All of these things sting, but it's the way of the kingdom because it's the way to glorify the Father and to overcome evil. 
Now, I hope it's obvious, even as I say that, that, that there are ways that we can have our dignity taken away. There are, there are ways that we could be hurt and harmed by others that Jesus obviously is not okay with. And so there are situations where we need to be obviously wise. But, again, let's be careful that we're not just going immediately to the exceptions, exceptions to the rule, but we're seeing what kind of a radical, unique, sacrificial love Jesus is calling us to. Because this kind of sacrificial love can change people's lives and it can change the world. This is the kind of good that overcomes evil. I read Romans 12, 19 earlier. Listen to a few more verses from that passage. Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who resisted the Nazi government during World War II, wrote this. The only way to overcome evil is to let it run itself to a standstill because it does not find the resistance it is looking for. Resistance merely creates further evil and adds fuel to the flames. But when evil meets no opposition and encounters no obstacle but only patient, patient endurance, its sting is drawn and at last it meets an opponent which is more than its match. Of course this can only happen when the last ounce of resistance is abandoned and the renunciation of revenge is complete. Then evil cannot find its mark. It can breed no further evil and is left barren. Now, now Bonhoeffer knew something of actively resisting evil, given that he was hanged for his role in the plot to, a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. But he also knew what peaceful non-retaliation looked like. And he reveals that, that those who use their strength to resist revenge are not letting evil win, nor are they weak. Rather, they are fighting evil in the only way that will ultimately kill it. We could consider the actions of Martin Luther King Jr., who, who modeled this passage well in our modern times. His peaceful non-resistance was rooted in this passage and in the belief, as he said, that darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. But of course, beyond Bonhoeffer and beyond Martin Luther King Jr., we of course see Jesus as the fulfillment and the model of his words. He is our example. So Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 21-24, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus was slapped on the cheek by his accusers. His clothes were taken from him so that he was literally naked on the cross. Jesus was forced by Roman soldiers to carry his cross to Calvary. Yet in none of this did he retaliate. 
He fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And he fulfilled the words of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When he did open his mouth, it was to cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in fact, as he was crying that out, he was purchasing the forgiveness of his enemies through his own death. By not retaliating, by not asserting his rights, Jesus was condemned to death. And if we're going to follow in his footsteps, then we also must die. We must die to our thirst for revenge. We must die to our love for our own dignity. We must die to our love for our possessions. We must die to our love of our freedoms. We must die to our love for money. And instead, we need to be filled up, filled up with a love for God and a love for neighbor. And not just neighbor, but for enemies as well, for those who would seek to harm us, a love for them. We're called to be those who choose to be wronged rather than to seek revenge. But even more than just choosing to be wronged, we also choose to sacrificially love. And that's how we shine as lights in this world. That's how we are the salt of the earth. Because trading insults, that's what everyone does. Turning the other cheek is what followers of Jesus do. Fighting tooth and nail for our rights, that's what everyone does. Laying down our rights. That's what children of God do. Hoarding our possessions and our money. That's what everyone does. Freely giving to all people. That's what spirit indwelt people do. Seeking revenge. That's what everyone does. This world loves an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But choosing to be wrong. That's something that only someone who's been saved by God through faith in Jesus and who is filled with his spirit. That's something only they will do. May God give us the strength to follow in the footsteps of Jesus as we take up our cross and die daily so that we can sacrificially love others. Let's pray together. Father, these are beautiful words and yet they are so challenging. Lord, we want to be like Jesus, but we don't want to die to these things. And so, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, by your power, you would give us a greater love for you and a greater love for our neighbor than we have a love for our own dignity, a love for our own clothing, our love for our money, our love uh, for our rights. Lord, that we would love you and we would love others more than we love all of these things. And we would choose to be wronged rather than to seek revenge. We would choose to love rather than to seek revenge. Lord, the, the applications of this passage are so wide and so varied. And so I pray that you would help each of us, that by your Holy Spirit, you would, you would minister to our own hearts and help us to see what this is going to look like in the coming week, what this is going to look like in coming months, what this is going to look like for the rest of our lives to live in this way. 
Jesus, thank you for being so clear. We confess that it's it's hard. We confess that that we want to nuance this teaching, that we want to dull all of its sharp edges so that it doesn't cut us so deeply. But Lord, we ask in your grace that you would allow it to cut us deeply even now, that we would respond to your word with repentance and with faith. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for Jesus who modeled this so well and who has done it perfectly so that our hope is not in fulfilling this law, but our hope is in the fact that Jesus has done what we never could and that Jesus has paid the penalty for all of our law breaking. Now, Lord, help us to walk in his steps by the power that he gives us. We ask all this in his name. Amen.